So I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not a huge fan of the word New Year's resolution. Ah, somebody else is not either, I guess. Oh. But I did want to make some commitments this year, and so I called it the 18 things that I'm resolved to do in 2009. See, I got around the whole New Year's resolution thing. So there were 18 things that God had really impressed on my heart that I wanted to do this year. A few of those things were that I wanted to know God more fully, and I wanted to treasure His love for me and for Himself and who He is. I wanted to, th- to read three books this year before the end of, or I'm sorry, to read three books every month, uh, every month this year. Uh, another thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to, to be sure that I protected every Thursday night as my family's family night. I wanted to be able to take my wife on a date every month. Another thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to run a half marathon under an hour and a half. I know that one is not very spiritual. But, uh, but nonetheless, it's something that I really wanted to do and that I wanted to commit to do. And another thing that I wanted to do this year, many of you know that we've switched over to using the ESV version of the Bible. I wanted to read through the whole Bible from beginning to end in the ESV version, something that I had not done before. And so I began that at the beginning of this year. I missed a few days, but I'm, I'm still trying to plug along as the best that I can. And I came to a chapter, Exodus chapter 32. And I want to tell you about this chapter for me. Outside of Genesis chapter 3, where we see the fall of man, Exodus chapter 32 here, in my opinion, must be one of the most disturbing, shocking chapters in all the Bible. As we look at man and the heart of man, and who man really is. And so tonight, as we celebrate what God is doing in our midst, we're going to start with something very disturbing. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 32. I want to read it for you. We have our, um, the page of the Bibles that are in the pews. If you want to use one of those Bibles, if you don't have your, your own, you're welcome to grab one of those. And we're going to read this chapter together, at least uh, a good portion of it. And then I want to tell you some things about it and how it applies to us today. So Exodus chapter 32. And we're going to read verses 1 to 10. So read here with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made the golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people 
whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may take a great nation or make a great nation of you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we read this passage, I want to tell you this story and I want to help you understand what I believe that it means for us today and how we should view it and understand it. What's happening here is Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for almost 40 days now. And so the people that are down at the camp that are waiting for their great leader to come back, they're starting to get a little concerned. That's when they say, they go to Aaron and they say, this Moses, this fellow, who's our leader? The dude's not coming back. So we need you to go before us and we need you to make a God that we can worship. And so Aaron does it. He listens to the pleas of the people. Not a good time to listen to democracy. And so he challenges them to do this. He says, take off your earrings, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And then he makes a tool. And he takes that tool and he crafts out of the melted gold a small calf. And this calf is going to be used as their idol. It's going to be their God. So after he crafts it, he sets it before the people. And then the people say this, which is actually what God repeats as he's talking to Moses. They say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and Aaron should have corrected them, but this idol wasn't even there when they came out of Egypt, right? He had just made it. But now these people are saying that this is the idol. This is the God that has delivered us from the hands of Pharaoh. Now Aaron, we can only assume, takes some kind of pleasure or joy in everybody thinking that his art project looks good. So he goes and he makes up an altar. And the story gets worse. Because when he makes up an altar, what he is doing is he's making a place for the people to come and to burn offerings before the golden calf. He's making a place for them to come and to bow down and to worship it. And so they go back, they go to sleep, and they wake up the next day. And the passage tells us very specifically, this is very important, it says they wake up early in the morning to go and to worship the golden calf. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it takes something really special to make me wake up early. You know what I'm saying? Typically, Starbucks coffee will do it pretty well. But they have to wake, they wake up early to go to something special. And so for them, this idol has become a very big deal. And when they get to the idol, it says that they burn offerings before it, so they're sacrificing blood offerings before this altar. And then they sit down. And when they sit down, things start getting crazy. 
They get a big old feast, grab on a bunch of food, get full bellies, and then they get drunk. And after they get drunk and get full, before this altar that they have made and before this God that they're ascribing this glory to, then it says they stand up and they play. Now, most of the kids, I think, are out of the room at this point. They're not talking about getting down a game of shoots and ladders. You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't bust out Twister. When it says they play, what that is referring to is a Hebrew word that means sex play. So they get up. Here, God's people, follow me here. They get up after they've gotten drunk and eaten a bunch of food, and they begin to have orgies with each other around this idol that they've made. The people that God has delivered out of the hands of Egypt. Are you disturbed yet? Then this is what the passage tells us. God says to Moses, you need to go down. Because your people are getting crazy. God doesn't even take credit for the people at this point. He says they're your people. Because God is talking about consuming them with his wrath. Because it says that he's burning hot. Now let me ask you a question. In this moment, does God have the right to burn hot with anger? Is God justified? If you're not sure, let me take you on a quick journey. This is the God who in the womb of a woman provided a child that would be named Moses. This is the God when all the other boys in Egypt were being killed that allowed a mother to have a plan to save a child. A child that would go and would live in the home of Pharaoh and would learn about things like leadership. This is a God who would burn a bush except it would not be consumed. And through that bush, He would give a vision for what Moses would do. This is a God who would give a man power to do miracles so that God's glory could be expressed as He tried to free a people from the bondage of slavery. This is a God who would bring about ten plagues, ten of the biggest miracles at that point that the world had seen for the purpose of freeing the Israelite people. This is a God who would spare the sons of the people of Israel as He annihilated the first sons of the Egyptians. This is a God who freed the people of Israel. This is a God, once those people were freed, that allowed there to be a pillar of fire and cloud in order for the people to be led and to be protected protected from the pursuit of the Egyptians. This is a God who parted the Red Sea and then engulfed the Egyptians so that they could be freed. This is a God, when the people started getting thirsty after they were on the other side of the Red Sea, that said, you know what? You think that the water is bitter? Let me make it sweet for you. Here's some good water to drink. This is a God who would bring down food from heaven so that this people could eat. Now let me ask you a question again. Does God have the right? Is He justified to be hot with anger? I believe that He does. I believe that we see a picture 
of this people of Israel who have been blessed beyond belief. And in 40 days, they forget it all. And they go to worship the things of their flesh. 40 days. That's all it took. Now you may be asking me the question, why in the world would you start out in a celebrative moment like this, where we're in this beautiful space, why would you start out with such a story of of guilt and and oppression and this people? They've been blessed, but they screw it all up. Let me tell you why. It is likely in my lifetime, in your lifetime, that we will never see miracles that are as immense as what those people saw. But what is possible in my lifetime, in your lifetime, is that we will look to other things as being our gods and forget the way that God has provided for us. To tell you about our previous chapters, like I just told you about the people in this story, the people of Israel. And Matthias Lot, you may not know this, but almost four years ago, God gave a group of families a vision to start a biblical church. During that time, those four years ago, God began to bring around people that would have gifts. And those gifts, God would use. He would rise them up and He would bless them and He would use those gifts for His glory so that a church could be planted. I had to uh, repent a lot with my feelings at times towards the church. Now, there's been moments where I have gotten very angry with the picture of the church that's seen. When I was a kid, I thought the, the building was a, just a phenomenal place to play hide-and-go-seek. Anybody else, you know? It was an amazing lock-in establishment, right? It's in moments like this that I'm reminded of the beauty of the bride. Messed up, screwed up individuals gathering because of a covenant a promise that by the blood of Christ were something else. Something made more beautiful. Something that will be wearing a white dress because of the sacrifice of a king. Jason spent some time tonight talking about what this building is not. I want to spend some time right now talking about what this building is. Are you with me? Now, to begin this discussion, right, like we all remember the word of the church, you know, the people, that weird thing we all learned when a kid, to, you know, the church's way of trying to tell us that the people are the church. Well, where, where do we get there? Where, how, how do we come to that point in the understanding that this is not the church? I've been working with Avery even, like, as we've been coming here now, and we came here last night for band practice, and working with her, like telling her, we're, we're going to the building where the church meets, Right, because there's this tendency, even in all of us, right? Okay, we're going, we're going to church tonight. Well, we're going to meet with the church tonight, right? So how do we get there? Well, there was this ancient, um, ancient thing called the temple. Have you guys ever heard of this, right? And uh, it began with this understanding of what a synagogue or a tabernacle, basically an an ancient place of gathering, was was where this idea arose: synagogue, uh, tabernacle, and then eventually. 
David wanted to house the Holy of Holies in one place because he wanted to be close to it. And so he spent a tremendous amount of time, energy, and resources to build this thing that's called the temple. I've been there. I've been along the Wailing Wall. I've seen it. It is humongous. The thing is gargantuan, right? A place where people could go and meet God. But then something happens, and we studied this just a few chapters ago in the Gospel of Luke. At the moment that Christ dies, the curtain tears in two, making access to the Father no longer by the means of an establishment, but by the means of Christ. Are you with me? That all of a sudden this ancient tradition that you go to a place and you gather, and that's where God is, now through Christ we have access to the Father. In literally one moment, the entire scheme of Jewish history was changed. But to better understand what this building is, we need to look at some New Testament perspectives. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The page number will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The New Testament writers began to articulate what was happening to this concept of the temple or of the building. And Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, says this in chapter 6. I want to start here in verse 18. He's talking in the scheme of sexuality, and he says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So he sets it up talking about sex. He's He's saying, look, you need to protect your body because anything that you do to your body has like this worth to it. And then he describes the worth in verse 19. Look at this. Or do you not know that your body is a what? What's the word? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from who? From God. Look at this. You are not your own for you were bought with a price So glorify God in your body. So if you're listening to this for the first time, trust me, you know what the temple is, all right? If you live in ancient Mesopotamian times, you know what the temple is. And so to hear that the temple now is in you, do you understand how revolutionary of a statement that would have been? The temple, yes. The temple now is in you because the Holy Spirit resides in you as a promise from God. Unbelievable. So the temple is personal. Everyone who's blood-bought, saved by the grace of the Lamb, is the residing of the temple of God. Interesting, isn't it? It makes you imagine a little bit like the moments when you're alone, struggling with sin, and thinking to yourself like, My body is a temple of God. But it's not just individual. Flip on your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Just a few pages over. Something unbelievable happens in Ephesians chapter 2. So uh, Paul goes to the the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and they're all worshiping this goddess. They're a Gentile nation. And he speaks something brilliant here in verse 18. For through him talking about Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
And this entire, uh, this entire passage is all about oneness, similar to John chapter 17. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Again, this is, he's writing this to Gentiles, but you are what? Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the what? Of the household of God. So he shifts now, and I don't know much about architecture, but he shifts now, and now he's going to start talking about architecture. That somehow there's this connection with being one in Christ and being united in the household of God. Look at this. Verse 20. And the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the scriptures that have been spoken. Christ Jesus himself being the what? Um, this place is made up of a bunch of brick. And I, Did you notice that? Right? And again, I don't know much about architecture, but you stack them and you mortar them and you stack them, right? And it makes this, a brick and mortar structure. And in ancient days, the temple would have been made of stone and mud and water, this huge place. Understand the shift when Paul writes, Christ Jesus now is the cornerstone. Not some worthless piece of mud. Not some temporal chunk of clay. The eternal Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. But this gets better. Look at this. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Hold up. Did you get that? The whole structure grows together into a holy temple in the Lord. Look at this. In Him, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look at this. The temple is individual, but it is also corporate. This is one of those amazing moments this week that I've realized another aspect of the church. The reason why there is so much power when the church gathers together is because all of these little temples of God's presence have come together in oneness with the same Spirit to worship God. With Christ as the cornerstone, building this foundation by God through the Spirit. Unbelievable. Now, at the end of the, at the, end of the Gospel of Matthew, you guys remember the commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them by the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. If this is true, if we're all like little mini temples of the presence of God, and when we gather together, we make some, like God is building this of this temple that's inside of us, then, then wouldn't we just all want to be together all the time, right? It's like, hey, did you guys bring your sleeping bag, right? Plenty of spaces to sleep here, trust me, you know? And it just turns into some massive lock-in, and we show up in the morning, and we do this all again, and we just, and we cater in Papa John's, anybody? Yeah, and we just pour the garlic sauce, and you know, all those things, right? Like, that would be our reaction. Let's just come together, and we'll celebrate, because we're the temple, man. 
Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And do you know how he ends the Gospel of Luke? You remember? He said, Wait in Jerusalem until what? Until power comes from on high. And when power comes from on high, what he's talking about is the Spirit of God. So listen to this. Jesus says, Go everywhere and make disciples, but go to Jerusalem and wait on the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit will put the temple of God in you. And then you gather together as the church. You what? To be mobilized and then sent out as temples moving into a pagan land carrying with you the presence of God. See, this has been the misconception of the church. The church is the gathering of the people where we come together and we celebrate. Yes, but it's so much more. We come together and we hear the Word of God and we worship the King in order that we may be the temple bearers in order that we may head out into the world from this brick and mortar, bringing something that will never fade, that will never die, the gospel. That's what this building is. It's brick and mortar, a gathering place so that you and I can come together with all of our temples gathered to celebrate, worship, and learn so that we may be sent out, commissioned as missionaries carrying the gospel of grace. The church isn't a lot of things. This building isn't a lot of things. But let me tell you this. This building is going to be a place where the word will be preached, where the gospel of grace will be heard, and where you and I will be sent out of here as temples carrying the Spirit of God. Are you with me? That's the beauty of the bride. That's what we must not mistake. The class is a lot. We're at a cornerstone tonight. After our journey, after all of our time together, right now, in this moment, we're at a, cross, a crossroads. Something will happen with us from here on out. And I want to ask you, church. Are you and will I settle for something temporal? Something that's made of stone and rock and water? Something that's composed of things that will just eventually crumble? Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Will we as a church make an idol of this building and cling to the thing that is so easy, easily to cling to. Something that we can hold, something that we can touch, something that we can grasp. Is that what you and I will respond to this building with? We have another option of what our church can continue to be today. And that's the church that God has called us to be from the very beginning. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples have gathered together and they, and they gather to replace Judas who's betrayed Jesus. And so when they cast Lot and the Lot falls to Matthias, 
We know that his whole purpose in Scripture is to come and to restore integrity to the apostolic ring of disciples. It's the last time that we hear his name mentioned. And so we believe as a church, as Matthias Slot, that God has called us to be a community that is bringing back integrity to the bride of Christ. To be restoring that integrity. Not to be restoring a church that we can come in and hide as a building but to be restoring the church, the bride of Christ, by seeing ourselves as the temple of the living God and realizing that every time we gather together, be it here in this building or be it in our homes, that the church is meeting. If we believe that this building is the church, then the gospel will stay here. If we believe that we are the church, then the gospel will go out. So church, what will it be? Will we hide behind the brick and mortar? Will we celebrate the brick and mortar or will we celebrate the living God through the power of Christ that is giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to all the world? So tonight we have an opportunity to respond, to be commissioned as missionaries, to see this night not as a night that will miss the call of God, but to claim it. As the band comes up, I'm just going to invite you guys. There's piles of brick all across the stage. And some of you during worship, as we respond now, just may need to hold this in your hand to see the composition of it, to see how temporal it is. The entire building one day will crumble and fall. And you may just need to hold this in your hand and pray against it. Pray against the idolatry that our hearts will so easily turn to. Do you know what happened with the golden calf? Moses comes down, burns the entire calf into powder, and then puts it in their drink. He makes them drink it so they see how easy it breaks down. Church, can I ask you a question? Tonight will we drink the cup of the remembrance of Christ? Or will we drink the cup of an idle heart? Respond. Maybe you need to grab a brick and head somewhere in this room and just pray against idolatry. And maybe others of you will be called to pray for the movement of Matthias' lot in St. Charles. Jason's going to pray and we're going to respond. May we be the moving living temples of God. Pray together. God, we come to you today, Father, fully recognizing that we have no power in and of ourselves to respond to you. There's no desire in our depraved heart that would cause us to turn to you and to worship you and to honor you. So God, we ask you to move us. We ask you to rise up in us a heart of love and of obedience and of faith that we could worship you for who you are, that we could serve you for who you are and that we could love this city for what it is. God, I ask you right now, that your vision for this church and for our world, for this city, to be more clear than it's ever been before. 
And God, I ask you to help us in a way that we cannot to respond to your riches, to respond to your grace, to respond to your Son, Jesus.